Well, welcome to Barnard. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Boylan, the Provost and Dean of the Faculty uh, at Barnard, and we're thrilled to have uh, such a wonderful full audience, especially as the semester winds down. Uh, that's a, a special tribute to the topic uh, tonight. Um, so we are delighted to host this evening's lecture towards a vision of sexual and economic justice. I wish to thank Barnard Center for Research on Women for organizing this event. The center is a vital part of Barnard's long commitment to feminism and leadership for social change. And this event is a fine example of the type of progressive conversation they work hard to promote. I want to thank also the Overbrook Foundation for their generous funding of this lecture, as well as the Ford Foundation, which is supporting a follow-up colloquium tomorrow. This colloquium is an opportunity to bring together a group of scholars and activists from various parts of the world who are working on the mutual configuration of sexual and economic justice. Tonight's event will touch a set of very urgent questions. What is sexual justice in a world where efforts to prevent the transmission of HIV face not just medical hurdles, but social ones because of sexual regulation and gender inequality? What is economic justice in a world where the gap between rich and poor widens steadily and where 1.3 billion people, or 20% of the world's population, lives on less than $1 a day? Finally, what do sexual and economic justice have to do with each other? Tonight's speakers will also discuss ways of building more connections between the justice movements that tend to treat sexual and economic justice discreetly instead of as inextricably linked. Barnard Center for Research on Women is committed to continuing these conversations over the next year, providing the promise to forge new links and offer new frameworks. They will be publishing a report summarizing the outcome of the colloquium, uh, of the colloquium discussions as part of the New Feminist Solutions series. So please contact the center if you are interested in receiving a copy. Hopefully we can all take part in working toward a new and more inclusive vision of justice. You can also pick up a copy of the center's most recent report within the New Feminist Solutions series in the back of the room, and please do sign up for the mailing list. And now to introduce tonight's speakers, Janet Jacobson, of the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women. I want to thank Janet publicly for the quality and the imagination that characterized the programming work that she and her center colleagues do, coming up with a schedule this semester in particular, uh, as we have dealt with the campus construction, has been a challenge which she has met creatively. So here's Janet. Good evening, welcome to Barnard. Um, I too have a few thank yous to start, out, uh, to start out with, and this is usually the moment when I invite you to the next event of the semester at the Barnard Center for Research on Women, but this is our finale for this semester. However, um, starting in January, we will begin again, and if you want to get information about next semester's programs, all you have to do is sign up on the list at the back, so please do so. I also want to thank Provost Elizabeth Boyland and in particular the Virginia C. Gildersleeve Lectureship at Barnard College which provided the initial funding for this event um, as well as the Overbrook Foundation which Liz mentioned for their support this evening and the Ford Foundation for their support for tomorrow's colloquium. 
Um, in addition, I have to thank, especially because it's the end of the semester, the staff of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, particularly Lucy Trainer, who is our administrative assistant, who did all of the logistical work to make sure that our speakers, the colloquium participants, and all of you got here tonight. Um, Hope Dechter, who is our web designer and who handled a lot of the publicity, as well as the always appreciated David Hobson, who um, from the communications department. And then Hisela Fasado, who is the associate director of the center and was a crucial member of the planning committee. Uh, finally, I need to say a word about Kate Bedford. Um, Kate was a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in women's studies here at Barnard College, and she is now a research fellow at the law school at the University of Kent. And Kate was really the driving force behind the entire project for which we are eternally grateful. Um, as um, Liz Boylan mentioned, this project is part of BCRW's New Feminist Solutions series. And for that series, we always partner either with another organization. The one that you can pick up in the back is done with an um, organization here in New York called um, A Better Balance Work and Family Legal Center, or with a member of the Barnard faculty. In the past, however, all the members of the Barnard faculty have been senior scholars. They have been very advanced um, in the profession and, and in their own work. But Kate is simply such an extraordinary um, young person that when she had this idea, we knew that we should build on it. And without her, we would not be here, none of us, this evening. So thank you to Kate Bedford. So for tonight, our topic, sexual justice, economic justice. On the one hand, the two are inseparable. If, for example, women are economically dependent on their sexual partners, can they ensure or even negotiate for safe sexual practices? Clearly, without economic justice, sexual justice would not be possible. Moreover, if conservative movements the world over focus on a regulatory sexual agenda as a means of promoting their conservative economic agenda, is economic justice possible without sexual justice? Are they even two different things? As we've pursued this project, and it's been over two years in terms of research in, in producing it, it's been harder to discern any separation between the two. Um, we actually began just calling this event the Echo Sexual Justice event, although then it sounded like we were producing an environmental movement. And well, I'm sure that environmental issues and sexuality are related. We have to do that next year. Um, on the other hand, some academic analysts and some activists see a profound separation between these two issues and the movements with which they are associated. This division has been named in a number of ways, as a division between social politics and cultural politics, or between the politics of recognition and the politics of redistribution, or perhaps less generously, as a division between real politics, war, and the economy, for example, and the frivolous, hence unreal, concerns of a few gender and sexuality. This division is getting harder to sustain, both through the efforts of uh, scholars and writers, um, as well as activists, several of whom are in the audience tonight and are going to participate in the colloquium, and I want to thank them for coming. Um, we are beginning to see the relation. For example, anti-poverty activists have come to focus on the spread of HIV-AIDS as a major stumbling block to ending extreme poverty, while HIV-AIDS activists have increasingly focused on the need for global economic health care reform. Yet even if we take the mutual constitution of sexual and economic justice to be proven, we still need to develop new visions of how the terms relate to each other, of what sexual justice and economic justice, or sexualnomic justice, um, echoes sexualness, <laughs> um, we'll get a word yet, might be, and most importantly, how they, or perhaps more accurately, it, can be secured in all of our lives. We could not have better assistance in this task than our two speakers tonight, and I then will introduce both of them, 
Um, they will speak each for about a half an hour, and then they will come to the table, and we will have a chance for about, hopefully, a half an hour's worth of conversation. Okay, we will speak in alphabetical order. Um, so Josephine Ho will go first. Uh, this, we struggled really hard because these are global movements to have an international panel. So Josephine Ho is a native of Taiwan, and she's been intensively involved in the burgeoning countercultural movements there since her return to Taiwan in 1988 after receiving two, not one but two, doctorates at U.S. universities. She went on to found the Center for the Study of Sexualities at the National Center, Central University in 1995, and is widely recognized the center is for both its activism and its intellectual stamina, something which we could all use more of. Josephine Ho herself has been writing extensively on many cutting-edge issues in the Taiwanese context, spearheading sex-positive views on female sexuality, gender and sexuality education, queer studies, sex work studies and activism, transgenderism, and most recently, body modification. All of this work has also made her a target for conservative backlash. In 2003, a dozen conservative Christian NGOs banded together to bring a lawsuit against Josephine Ho and the center, um, and specifically her massive sexuality studies internet data bank. With the support of students, scholars, activist groups, along with a widespread international petition drive plus her own articulate self-defense in court, Josephine Ho won the court case, first in the district court and then in the high court in 2004 thus successfully defending the freedom of speech and information on sexual matters. Josephine Ho has also participated in mobilizations for the anti-war movement, anti-globalization movement, anti-nuclear movement, and most recently, anti-social exclusion movement. For her tireless efforts in all of these areas, she was one among the thousand women from all over the world who were collectively nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. Our second speaker, again part of our international panel, Naomi Klein, who is Canadian is an award-winning journalist, syndicated columnist, and author of the New York Times and international bestseller, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Capitalism. There is a six-minute companion film by Alfonso Caron, um, who is the director of Children of Men, which was an official selection of the Venice and Toronto International Film Festivals and has been downloaded over a million times. And if you want to see the film, you can either go to Naomi's website, naomikline.org, or you can just Google Shock Doctrine and, and it will come up. Um, her previous book, No Logo, Taking Aim at the Brand Bullies, was also an international bestseller. Naomi Klein is a regular, writes a regular column for The Nation and The Guardian. In, in 2004, her reporting from Iraq for Harper's Magazine won the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism. She is a former Miliband, Miliband Fellow at the London School of Economics and holds an honorary Doctor of Civil Laws from the University of King's College in Nova Scotia. So, Josephine Ho. Good evening. It's a great honor and pleasure to be here at Barnard College. Many of us in other parts of the world have been touched by the Scholar and Feminist Conference that sparked the sex debates 25 years ago. And it's truly still inspirational to finally visit the historical site. This evening, I would like to focus on describing two significant developments that I believe have created brand new sets of conditions, as well as power deployments for both economic and sexual struggles in East Asia, and maybe in other parts of the world too. The first has to do with the crisis of reproduction that now faces late capitalism. The second has to do with the emergence 
of governance that constitutes so-called democratization in many national contexts. I shall try to demonstrate that these two related changes have so profoundly altered the nature and the field for struggles in the economic realm as well as in the sexual realm that any discussion we hold at this time cannot afford to overlook their ramification. Change of glasses. <laughs> Age does creep up on you. Okay. The crisis of capitalist reproduction that I'm interested in has to do with the reproduction of adequate subjects as competent bearers of the system, more specifically, the reproduction of class positions through education or other mechanisms so that, for example, children of the middle class would be competent and diligent enough to inherit their, par inherent their parents' class standing, and children of the labor class would remain content with their future status of labor and readily accept whatever discipline and domestication that come their way. Yet, as we observed most visibly in the last wave of economically better-achieved Asian states, including Japan, Korea, Singapore, and Taiwan, such class reproduction is now facing an increasingly acute crisis brought on by the capricious movement of globalization. Japanese author Kenichi Ome's ominous theory has won tremendous following in Asia when he described the economic aspect of this crisis as the rapid descent of the middle class into frustrated lower middle class through a long trail of sagging salaries and precarious employments in so-called M-shaped societies. With growing uncertainty and a volatile future, no enduring order seems to remain for steady class reproduction. Increasingly out of jobs and out of prospects, the sinking middle class displays what Habermas has, has termed a motivational crisis with a pervasive sense of anxiety and pessimism over the future. If adults find themselves no longer able to count on future prospects, neither do they find any consolation in their children's performance. The proliferation of neologisms in Asia that describe the disappointing work performance of the post-baby boom generations partially crystallizes such adult reaction and frustration. For instance, the term freeder zeroes in on young people's preference that the freedom and flexibility of part-time or temporary jobs over steady but enslaving full-time jobs and so-called strawberry generation satirizes young generations' obsession with personal appearances, as well as their lack of resilience slash perseverance in face of difficulties and pressure. In a way, such neologisms are economically framed expressions of adult anguish as they gradually lose hold of the reproduction process. As such anguish seeks an outlet and culprit, it locates it conveniently in the sprawling global fashions and lifestyles that are inserting many unexpected variables into local youth cultures. If American pop culture has brought individualism and attitude to Asia, now Japanese or Korean pop cultures are captivating Asian populations through culturally much more accessible forms. Surprisingly, these cultural representations are also quite explicit and matter of fact about gender and sexual, sexual diversities illustrated by the omnipresence of adulteries, homosexuality, SM sex, incest, gender crossing, and other marginal sexualities in Japanese mangas. If you haven't read any, start now. <laughs> During the same period of time, the advent of the internet also made a wealth of sexual information and more importantly, sexual contacts readily accessible 
helping youngsters range way beyond the circle of relations closely monitored by parents and teachers. As the status competition among teenagers draws upon such cultural resources, and as the tabloid media thrive on sensationalized reports of such developing trends, parents and teachers are increasingly alarmed about the possibility of so-called gender-slash-sexuality deviances and their class implications. When such economically-induced frustration gets deflected onto disciplinary problems with the younger generation, another power shift takes place. Parental power, as the embodiment of pre-modern authority and domination, had been on the decline in the early years of nation-building in Asia when the state aimed at minimizing cultural differences through modern mass education and social integration. But now, parental power is widely sought by conservative Christian groups that hope to mobilize parent collaboration and support in casting a legitimate surveillance net over all social space in the name of none other than child protection. Helping to foster the protectionist mentality, moral panics and demonization of sexual diversity flare up regularly with the help of the mass media, followed by urgent demands for better protection measures. In quite a few East Asian states, a continuous string of legislations has been put into place in recent years, spearheaded by conservative Christian NGOs, to ensure that social space is purified, all bad influences removed, much like what they did to New York City, for the sake of the precious children born to this age of critically low birth rates. When the parent imaginary looms large and obligates every adult to live by such protective duties, the companion imaginary of the child, as innocent and vulnerable and non-sexual, is applied to everyone under the age of 18, according to UN decree. As protective middle-class parents are recruited to purity campaigns to vigilantly hound down all kinds of bad, in particular, sexual influences that threaten children's well-being, such socially constructed anxiety and hysteria pose insurmountable obstacles to sexual autonomy and sexual justice for the young. Incidentally, one aspect that seems to be missing from almost, almost all of the thought papers prepared for tomorrow's colloquium is, is exactly this aspect of child and teenage sexuality as part of our basic conceptions of sexual justice. While children's liberation had received much discussion in the 1960s and 70s, and the historical construction of childhood was critically examined to, to a certain extent, this progressive effort seems to have been replaced now by a new social consensus on the asexuality and vulnerability of children in the face of rampant sexual predators. Necessary measures for their close protection are thus proposed at the price of infringement on basic freedoms of information, speech, and communication. Of course, we can discuss whether sexual justice equals rights of the young to sexual information and sexual pleasure, but at least there should be room for other such ideas for debate. Yet in many parts of Asia, such ideas are not only unthinkable, but now even relegated to criminality, for they are considered to be damaging to the hearts and minds of the young. Obviously, the backlash against the realization of enlightened and diversified sex culture is well underway. Viewed in this light, 
how subjects are produced since the early years of their lives to be equipped with the right emotions, personality, or sexual inhibitions to become good citizens, bearers of the capitalist system, or believers of the free market economy has become an urgent issue that warrants our attention as we ponder the intersection of sexual justice and economic justice. Rising parental power and the concomitant infantilization of all social space, real or virtual, also demonstrate that in addition to disasters that create clean slates for the spread of capitalism in various areas, which Naomi Klein has eloquently described in her new book, the reproduction of capitalism in many national contests still relies upon or makes use of certain traditional cultural values, familial structures, gender roles and relations, and various traditional forms of social control whenever necessary so as to facilitate its operation. In other words, capitalism does not always stand in opposition to tradition. In fact, it has become somewhat good at adapting and appropriating traditions as it developed. Traditional gender divisions of labor and traditional hierarchical structures of domination within the family or in between generations make up ready examples in Asia. If we hope to pose any real challenge to the prevailing economic order, then we cannot lose sight of the important question of reproduction in the realms generally relegated to the personal, the familial, and sexual. The fact of the matter is, it is often changes in the sexual realm and struggles for sexual freedom that cause profound disturbances in traditional social relations and cultural formations. Issues such as surrogate mothering, homosexual marriage, right to abortion, premarital sex, female sexuality, teenage sexuality, sexual permissiveness, and pornography all have raised sharp controversies exactly because they pose serious challenges to traditional practices of motherhood, family, chastity, and various forms of social control, all related to the biological or social reproduction of subjects. Of course, sexual openness also benefits capitalistic reproduction in a way it spurs desire and consumption, or, as Herbert Marcuse says, provides temporary but limited ventilation for sexual repression. Yet, because of their potential and fundamental threat to traditional mores and values and forms of social control, as well as their interruption of the continued reproduction of repressed, docile subjects, Liberalizing tendencies in sexuality have always been deemed dangerous by the state. While actual measures taken to curb such developments vary from one national context to another, nation states do tend to side with sexual conservatism when sexual practices and values diversify at the pace they do these days, when, which explains the increasingly acute contradiction between sexual openness and sexual regulation that we are witnessing now in many countries. In the US, consensual sex between adult strangers may not constitute a crime. But in Taiwan, strangers seeking one night stands or SMers seeking kindred spirits through the internet have become prosecutable for, quote, dissemination of messages deemed pornographic, unquote. I have already alluded to the important and aggressive role conservative Christian NGOs have played in Asia's new democracies in this whole process of reinstating parental power so as to ensure proper reproduction of subjects through intense regulation of all social space in the name of child protection. The question remains, if Christianity is but a minor religion in most Asian states, 
How did these relig religious NGOs achieve such positions of influence with the state? Well, I propose it takes place within a historical context, a context of democratization, and this is where we need to turn to the second issue, the emergence of governance, or more precisely, global governance in East Asia. Democratization, understood as elections based on universal suffrage, competing political parties, accountability of governments to govern, the rule of law, and basic civil liberties, has been more or less underway in Asian states since World War II. Whether these political arrangements truly empower the people and promote equality and justice is, of course, a different matter, which I will not have time to go into this evening. Yet in the age of globalization, when both political and economic pressures from powerful nations and powerful international organizations can no longer be overlooked by the sovereign state, when the saturation and proliferation of information channels create such social heterogeneity that it upsets existing social order and social homogeneity, when the formal channels of socialization such as the family and the school falter in their power of influence, the state likewise faces a legitimation crisis as it is exposed as cumbersome and incapable of responding efficiently to such dramatic changes. In order to rein in teeming social energies, the state learns to franchise its rule to cooperating NGOs or collaborating corporations, which in turn not only help consolidate state rule, but also improve its international standing. The formation of the complex network of formal and informal institutions, mechanisms, relations between and among states, citizens, and organizations has thus effected a reconfiguration of political institutions and processes into what is known as governance. Scholars of international relations are elated about the seeming shrinking of the state power as they celebrate the rise of governance and the expansion of global civil society. In China, governance is even heralded as liberals, by liberals as the ideal that would reform the communist regime. Sadly, as NGOs take up franchises from the state and eagerly enter the scheme of governance as consultants or decision makers for government policies, many of them are also gradually absorbed into the bureaucratic structure. Rather than being organizations of social transformation, or at least social critique, NGO activism and feminist careerism, very strange terms, have now become increasingly disciplinarian, leading to stagnation of movement energy in many Asian countries ranging from India to Japan. Conservative NGOs, in the meantime, have enjoyed great success in turning themselves into the long arms of the state in the creation and execution of policies, legislations, and strategies that purify and rigidify social space, real and virtual. The enumeration of terms such as, it may sound funny, gongos, government-organized NGOs, bongos, business-organized NGOs, gingos, government-interested NGOs, and bingos, big NGOs, which epitomize the professionalization of NGOs, all of these above signal a growing sensitivity toward the developing diversity and complexity within civil society and the symbiotic relations developing between the state, the corporations, and certain parts of the civil society. When governance brought forth this diversification of the civil society, social activism for marginal issues 
suffers. What is being described as economic justice in the new liberal democracies in Asia is basically distributive justice, far from any socialist aims geared toward transformations in the productive realm. In actuality, such distributive justice is often expressed through the institution of welfare policies and do not necessarily form any coherent, full-scale measure to deal with structurally ingrained economic justice, but are only limited to remedial measures that mitigate some of the hardships faced by marginalized populations. Furthermore, as such welfare policies are always mediated through active negotiation with the state by representative NGOs, there is not only the problem of adequate representation, but also the common problem of bureaucratic and strategic needs of the NGO institutions themselves, overriding the true needs of the subjects for, whom, who, for whose benefits the NGOs were created in the first place. Furthermore, in order to fit in with government regulations of spending and accountability, as well as to command respectability in image and appeal, NGOs tend to incline toward mainstream values and issues, making even distributive justice hard to achieve. The professionalization of NGOs may end up diffusing whatever limited radical impulse there had been, but the entry of conservative NGO, Christian NGOs into the government power circle of governance proves to be even more devastating for struggles for sexual justice. Developing projects aimed at promoting population management, disease prevention, and maternal and child health end up intentionally or unwittingly shaping ideas about one, what constitutes normal, thus acceptable, sexual practices and identities. Much like US Christian NGOs that launched boycotts of liberal-minded or gay-friendly media programs of indu or industrial corporations, Taiwan's conservative Christian NGOs call upon big corporations to pull their ads from popular TV programs and tabloid newspapers that are more liberal in exploring changes in sexual values and practices. In 2006, Taipei City legislators associated with an NGO called Exodus International, an international Christian organization that advocates, quote, freedom from homosexuality through the power of Jesus Christ, unquote, threatened to pull government funding from the annual gay festival in Taipei City because city funds should not be used to, quote, promote homosexuality, unquote. Worst of all is, of course, the numerous international agreements on measures directed at sex trafficking, pornography, sex work, child pornography, pedophiles, internet content monitoring, and so forth, that aggressive Christian NGOs and their collaborating allies are helping to put into place. Such international protocols constitute the strongest justification for comparable, if not more rigid, local, leg local legislations that make struggles for sexual justice all the more difficult. The interpenetration of the state and the civil society under governance arrives with other new technologies of power, which may be potentially quite detrimental to marginal issues and subjects. A process called, quote, deliberative democracy, unquote, has been introduced in some Asian states in recent years as a participatory method of policymaking that is arbitrated through political deliberation by a select but supposedly neutral citizenry. Procedure-wise, deliberative democracy seems to embody the essence of the democratic spirit where reason reigns, and the end result could include certain progressive ideas. 
The problem is, in the state's own precarious state status of the legitimacy, it shifts its duty to uphold the rights and benefits of the minority to this mechanism of collective deliberation. Consequently, basic freedoms now need to be renegotiated, while the final result of the process can still be mitigated. In Taiwan, for example, laws governing artificial insemination and surrogate mothering were subjected to the procedure of deliberative democracy, and the initial conclusion was quite liberal. Yet, eventually, the state legislation excluded lesbians and gays who wished to have children. In Hong Kong, faced with articulate progressive scholars and increasingly liberal censorship officers, ultra-conservative Christian group now demands that the definition of indecency be determined not by experts and professionals, but by opinion polls to be conducted among the general public every two years so as to reflect, quote, true contemporary community standards, unquote. Conceivably, deliberative democracy will be invoked most often when sex-related issues rise to controversy level, when only sexual stigma can effectively put an end to liberalizing impulses. In essence, deliberative democracy may in spirit be a new form of democracy that gravitates towards so-called people's reason, but in its actual execution, it has the potential to become a new form of social exclusion that threatens social sexual freedom. Incidentally, nowadays, it is the NGOs on the right that are quite adept in using the language of multiculturalism, tolerance, and mild liberalism when they advocate their conservative agenda. Sometimes I sound conservative. Protectionist language is employed to chastise parents who do not live up to ideals of middle-class child-rearing practices. Feminist discourse on objectification and exploitation is liberally applied by the Christian groups to criticize positive female sexual assertiveness and any open expression or representation of sexuality. Now they are more feminist than us. Actually, the right wing seems to have no more gripe with discourse on economic justice. But when it comes to advocacy of sexual justice, right wing groups flip over in anger and terror. How are we to understand this odd phenomenon? Well, perhaps the conservative Christian groups quite aptly grasped the deeply ingrained cultivation of bodily sensations, feelings, emotions that constitute the material base of agency and against the grain action. Perhaps justice is not only the way our society is organized, but more importantly, the way our character and emotions are constituted. After all, the belief in and feelings about justice need a material base too. Not necessarily an economic base, but a material base that happens to have a lot to do with our very material bodies and their very material experiences with sexuality that are severely circumscribed by the given social environment. It is here that the impact of global governance demonstrates extreme potency. It aims to not only formulate the most intricate forms of social control, but also to constitute the very subject for its rule. So far, I have tried to explain how economic globalization has brought on its own crisis of reproduction and how such crisis is being deflected onto social control in the sexual realm in particular. 
I have also tried to demonstrate how global governance has opened up the door to state NGO collaboration to the extent that transformative impulses are diffused and sexual repression is institutionalized in the legal realm. Both tendencies have created dire consequences for economic and sexual activism. Yet in many parts of the third world, or even in parts of the United States, there are other social forces that are so powerfully nested in profound social contradictions, sedimented through convoluted histories, that their activation instantly dominates any given political scene and overwhelms causes in sexual justice and economic justice. Furthermore, the democratic spirit of rule of law, now interpreted by conservative forces as rule by law, has greatly broadened the scope of criminality to include almost all social presences of sexuality. In the last part of my talk, I would like to bring in these two important and different side effects of Asian democratization for our consideration. Modern democracies are chronically enmeshed in the regular spasms of democratic elections. I think you're under one now. In many third world nations, and maybe still so in many parts of the United States, elections can churn up such strong emotions that the hostility fanned up by competing political parties may take years to appease. As much as labor groups and sex rights groups hope to further their causes in such political mobilization, they hardly ever achieve comparable leverage. Instead, ethnicity readily enters the scene Blatant discrimination and abuse of alien labor is characterized in Taiwan as an ethnic issue, justified by all the ethnic prejudices and totally eclipsing the class dimension. In the face of severe economic hardship, even when presented with allegations of the president's long history of corruption and conspiracy, numerous Taiwanese voters still proclaim, we will vote for Abien, the president's nickname, even in starvation. Or, Quote, loving Taiwan despite an empty stomach is true love for Taiwan, unquote. Such statements and the emotional strength that utters them defy any analysis that considers the economic as the determinant factor. In fact, supporters lend themselves easily to the belief that Taiwan's economic depression is a result of China's deliberate bullying or individual Taiwanese entrepreneurs' greed rather than a result of globalization and its consequent marginalization of Taiwan. The ruling party's manipulation of ethnic identity in relation to nation-state passion has thus weakened and marginalized class analysis and class thinking. And the emotionally charged issue of ethnicity can be invoked at opportune moment to divide and polarize any social movement. As ethnicity-based nation-state building still operates as the core issue in many new liberal democracies in Asia and in other parts of the world, the obstacle, the obstacle it poses for other social causes certainly calls for more attention as we ponder the connection between economic struggle and sexual struggle. If ethnicity, as it is mobilized in nation-state politics, is a formidable force to be reckoned with in our pursuit for justice, then the newly expanded scope of criminality constitutes a second formidable force that works to frustrate our actual struggles. Global economic shifts have exacerbated the daily survival of the economic underclasses, leaving them fewer recourses than suicide, bankrupt credit, or destitution. 
Inability to stay economically afloat easily slips into bad credits and a large increase in debt-related prosecutions. And sex work, whether in one's own country or through illegal stay in other more ludicrous countries, often becomes the only viable but criminal exit. Moreover, for them and for everyone else, the overall social context is worsening. Global protocols of governance propagated by international NGOs and their branches in various nations are sweeping across the globe to encourage new legislations that would treat all sex work as human trafficking, all internet sexual exchanges as sexual predation, and all adult publications or videos as pornography, and all of the above are now considered criminal acts. When the Taipei city government revoked the licenses of prostitutes in 1997, it effectively created hundreds of criminals making what had been honest, state-protected, and regulated sex work into prosecutable crimes. Since the child protection laws in Taiwan were modified to cover internet information in 1999, more than 20,000 criminals have been created because they posted messages deemed hinting at sexual transaction, which actually includes one-night stand invitations or straightforward sexual solicitations by sexual minorities. Plastic-wrapped and marked-for-adult publications sold in Taiwan's only gate bookstore were seized in 2003, and the owner convicted of dissemination of obscenity in 2006, despite continued protestation by gay groups. Sex-positive campus publications by students of Hong Kong Chinese University were subjected to prosecution in 2006 because complaints of indecency have been filed against them by conservative Christian citizen groups. The legal grid on sexual information and values has grown so tight that sexual dissidents posted on the internet could be prosecuted and academic research into marginal sexualities are subject to severe scrutiny. I know this through firsthand experience. <laughs> where more than a dozen conservative Christian NGOs banded together and took me to court in 2003 for including difficult material and liberal views in my sexuality studies online data bank. The final verdict was not guilty, yet it is symptomatic. The, the lawsuit itself is symptomatic of the trend that contestations in sexual values and mores no longer take the form of rational debates or discussions. Instead, marginal minority issues are now to be censored by the iron fist of litigations. At this historical moment, it may be highly instructive to explore the intersection of economic justice and sexual justice by looking into the process of how the economic and the sexual underclasses are relegated to criminality, much like the political dissidents had been prosecuted under martial law in Taiwan before 1987. Finally, a few days ago at dinner with some activist friends, I told them about my trip to New York and our topic for discussion here. I asked one of them how she would view this issue and her answer was quite sobering. Here is what she said, quote, I'm not so sure how to think about economic justice or sexual justice, but when I hang around the economically disadvantaged transgender sex workers who are both frank and at ease talking about the sexual services they provide and the way they make it through their daily lives in the world of gender dimorphism, I wish the leftists and the feminists and the predominantly middle-class transgender groups would have the humility to sit down and listen and learn from them.
Class positions and non-conforming gender sexuality identities are not abstract ideas. Real people facing real problems occupy such nodal points of limitation and oppression. When even their mere presence and identity as transgender sex workers is considered criminal and prosecutable on many counts, obviously there's a lot more to be done by both the economic and the sexual fronts. And I leave you with that thought. Thank you. Thank you, Josephine. It's an honor to, to follow that very stimulating talk. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, when I got this invitation, I was um, neck deep in the research um, for the shock doctrine, which was a very, very male world, I can tell you. Um, and uh, I'm ha in some way, I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, it, it, writing this sort of alternative history of of the rise of neoliberalism and this idea of disaster capitalism, I didn't find that many examples of women who believed that you could create a utopia on a, through destruction. Um, um, Condoleezza Rice is an exception. Um, in, in the final stages of writing, the Israeli bombing of, of Lebanon took place, which was described by by Ms. Rice as uh, birth pangs for a new Middle East. So this is, so women are uh, equally capable of confusion, confusing destruction and creation. Um, but it is a very male world. And, um, and that is why I was, have been so looking forward to this gathering and this discussion. Um, I, uh, I'm actually gonna talk a little bit shorter just because um, we're running a little tight on time and I want to leave room for discussion. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to quickly edit myself a little bit. Um, so be patient with me if you can while I, while I figure this out. Um, although I, I, I was really struck, and I want to respond a little bit to, 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 uh, to Josephine's fantastic talk. Um, I, and I'm really glad that you stressed uh, the, the rise of the surveillance society and the, and, and the criminalization of so many parts of our lives, which is, I think, part of, it has people uh, in this country quite confused about whether globalization is over, right? Whether neoliberalism is over, um, whether all the Bush administration really cares about is security. You know, part of the reason why we're confused about this is because we hear it all the time, right? I mean, it's one of the responses to September 11th, one of the ways in which the administration responded to September 11th was to tell us that the debates we were having about economic justice were no longer relevant. Um, and there was a right-wing newspaper in Canada called the National Post that was started by uh, Conrad Black. Some of you may know his work. Um, and uh, the, on, on September the 12th, 2001, they ran a headline that said, globalization is so yesterday. <laughs> and so there was, there was this incredible enthusiasm, actually, to end the, dis, the, the debate that was taking place, more than the debate, the protests that were taking place in the streets, uh, 
the day before. Uh, and uh, and to, to use that event to say, okay, we've got much more important things to discuss. Now, we don't care about economics. Uh, and uh, the, the American ambassador to Canada at the time, a um, uh, charming man, uh, announced that uh, there was this phrase we heard over and over again, security trumps trade, right? Uh, and, and what it meant was, if you want to keep the trade of goods flowing, um, you have to abide by our new security measures. I think people got a glimpse of some of our new security measures a little while ago when you, some of you may have seen the videotape of uh, a Polish immigrant coming to the Vancouver International Airport and being tasered within 30 seconds of meeting our police force um, and dying in the midst of this. Um, so. One of the things that um, I'm arguing in the, at, at, at this point is that what we need to understand is that security is the new trade. Security is the new big business. And all of this infrastructure of hyper-surveillance and control has been privatized. Uh, and this is the cutting edge of the neoliberal project. I'm gonna use the phrase neoliberalism if that's okay. I know that that's not a phrase that's used that much in the United States because anything liberal is um, associated with the left, I realize. But in most parts of the world it's called neoliberalism. I'm talking about the economic agenda of privatization, deregulation, cuts to government spending. I think you know what I mean. Reaganomics, Thatcherism, free markets, whatever. Um, globalization, I mean, it's one of the hardest things about tracking the rise of this ideology is knowing what to call it and the fact that people call it different things and the fact that it is a shapeshifter and just when you kind of nail it down and are really having a debate about it, it changes its name. It used to be called globalization, free trade. Now it's called the war on terror, I would argue. Um, so so the, this, the, the, the privatization of criminal, the criminalization and surveillance of every aspect of our lives reconciles this seeming contradiction between the rise of this kind of control uh, and the neoliberal agenda, right? Uh, and it's it is a real difference from the way we talked about globalization in the 90s, where you know, the, the, the discourse of the corporate world was all about diversity, liberation, mobility. Uh, I'm not saying it was a reality, but that was the public discourse, and particularly when it came to the information companies. You know, this is what they were selling. They were selling freedom. They were, and, they were, and, their, and their technologies were going to bring freedom uh, to, to, to enslaved societies around the world. Rupert Murdoch was going to liberate China with satellite TV. Uh, that was the promise of globalization. And now we see this shutting down and the constant uh, uh, attacks on immigrants, and you know the, the person who embodies this shift most graphically is Lou Dobbs, right? I mean, Lou Dobbs in the 90s was a man of the new economy, right? All day long on CNN, he was telling people to buy dot-com stocks, right? And he was getting very personally wealthy off of the dot-com boom as well. He leaves CNN, comes back, and he is now the face of this. Uh, crack down on immigrants, and he, night after night after night, 
Um, he's using extraordinarily racist language um, and the fear of the immigrant influx, right? And so it seems that Lou Dobbs has really changed, right? He used to be this staunch capitalist, and now he doesn't seem to care about capitalism anymore. In fact, he's, he's taking on the big capitalists. But what I would argue is that he's, in fact, um, fueling a different kind of economic boom. He, he fueled the boom in information economies. And now, even though he won't admit it, he is actually fueling an economic boom in homeland security technologies, which need to be in a state of constant threat, whether immigrants, terrorists, child predators. Um, you know, I think it, 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 what really struck me about what Josephine was saying is that you know, in the realm of parenting, it is the, it is the super predator they're the online pornographer pedophile who plays the role that the terrorist plays for grown-ups, right? But both of them really sell the same technologies, and these are all privatized technologies. And there, and there is an economic boom going on. We don't talk about it because it doesn't brag. In the 90s, we got used to new economies announcing themselves with great fanfare, right? And, and we got used to a class of wealthy people, of, new, of, of newly wealthy people, who were not at all ashamed of how rich they were, right? And liked to get their pictures taken in glossy magazines next to their remote-controlled yachts and things like that. Um, so we came to expect that when there was an economic boom, it would brag to us. It would tell us that it had arrived, right? Because it was so relentless in its bragging in the 90s. Um, so this economic boom, this security, homeland security surveillance boom, the privatization of the war on terror, uh, it, it does not brag, knows better than to brag about how much money is being made through this infrastructure of surveillance, the CCTV cameras, uh, uh, the, the, the Blackwaters. Um, you know, it's all cloaked in the language of security. And Blackwater, I think, is a, uh, is a great example of, of, of this um, merging of this far-right conservative agenda and the, the, the neoliberal privatization agenda in its final phase. Um, you know, what I'm arguing here is that we should kind of think of the state like an octopus that has all of these arms and it has this body in, at the center. And that what the neoliberal economic project has been doing over the past couple decades, three decades in some parts of the world, um, has been lopping off the arms of the state and feeding it to multinational, feeding them to multinational corporations, the phone system, the roads, the airwaves, uh, water, electricity. Um, now, in this country, it's all, all the arms have been pretty much lopped off. There's not much, right? All that's left is the core, what they call core government services. Now, what are those core services? Well, it's the running of the government itself, uh, you know, the issuing of welfare checks and, and the, the, the overseeing of contracts, the issuing of contracts, the, the, the administering of the state. And it is security. It's the army. Uh, it's police. It's firefighting. It's disaster response. So the people who make up the Bush administration, really the key people uh, of this, uh, uh, who have been leading this country in the world now for almost eight years, are, are people who saw this as the final neoliberal frontier. Right? That is what 
That is what Halliburton was doing in the 90s when it was headed by Dick Cheney, was tr privatizing the military, building US military bases in the Balkans that were like US suburbs, entirely run by Halliburton, like heavily armored packaged vacations. For, for soldiers, um, where, it, where, where military bases were not the way we traditionally think of as military bases. They had fast food outlets, video stores, gyms, and everything is run by Halliburton. And the troops are kind of content providers in this. So this was Dick Cheney's business before he went in to government. Um, and Eric Prince, the head of Blackwater, said that he wants Blackwater to do for the military what FedEx did for the post office. Right? This was, you know, he sees this as part of a continuation of this neoliberal privatization agenda. He also happens to be, uh, and his entire family is very linked to the far right in this country. Um, and uh, they, they donate exclusively to the Republican Party, except sometimes they donate to the Greens if it looks like they can keep a Democrat from winning. Um, and uh, they're very linked uh, to the anti-choice movement. Um, they are very linked to this anti-immigrant surge um, in the South. And they see a growth market in taking the role that they played in Iraq and bringing it home to policing the borders. So this whole surveillance economy um, is very much, is, it, 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 these, these, these so-called traditional values are very profitable. Um, and this whole discourse, of, um, uh, which we tend to think of as a backlash against neoliberalism, is also very profitable. And this is one of the ways in which the backlash against neoliberalism is playing out around the world, because of course these policies uh, now that there is a, a legacy we can, we can measure, we're not talking about the promise of globalization, we're talking about what actually happens, right? There's a track record and the track record is lousy and that's why people are rejecting neoliberalism in Latin America and in many, many parts of Eastern Europe because the promise of trickle-down economics has failed. Now these right-wing policies come in to fill the gap and you get this scapegoating and you have a rise of fascism in Eastern Europe you have, uh, in Poland in particular, although thankfully they lost in the last elections, but you have a, a new politic that is talking about economic shock therapy as having been a humiliation for the country, that you need to get their nationalist pride back, and as part of that nationalist pride uh, is attacking gays and lesbians, um, is attacking women, attacking immigrants. But of course, this siege mentality uh, is also part of this privatization, militarization, security state. Um, so I think we're in a new phase. We need to understand that it is more sophisticated. It's harder uh, to identify. It challenges uh, some of you know, our, our, tra our traditional ways of understanding economics and, and the ways in which we talked about these issues uh, um, before September 11th. Now, The defining characteristic of the, of the, of the neoliberal crusade around the world, the, 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 I would argue, is, is the rise of precariousness. There, uh, the, the exclusion of, of, of large sectors of people from the uh, official economy, 
just shocked out of the roles. And what, what I do in, in this sort of alternative history of, of neoliberalism uh, is look at the key junctures where countries uh, were prescribed what's called economic shock therapy. Uh, and there was a, where, where the whole set of these policies were imposed all at once, like Russia in the mid-90s is the classic example, or Poland in 1989. Um, and you know, what, what we know about these key junctures and it, it is that societies become much, much more unequal. This rapid fire selling off of the state creates a, an oligarchic class. Um, and it also just throws millions of people out, not just out of work, but out, so out of the organized economy. And precariousness is the signature experience of the neoliberal project. Uh, displacement, whether from mega dams, uh, from export processing zones, the rise of casual labor as opposed to steady protected work, protected by trade unions. Um, and that's why mobility, and when you add climate change and, and, and mass displacement because of climate change and a collision between weak public infrastructure, which is also a legacy of the neoliberal project, which sees investing in the public sphere and that kind of public infrastructure um, as antithetical to the goals, you have this collision between weak infrastructure and heavy weather like we saw in New Orleans. And so you have millions of people displaced by extreme weather. So the precariousness, the mobility, these are the signature policies of, of neoliberalism. Now, I've talked a little bit about how this economic project is adaptable enough to be able to profit from cracking down on those mobile people, right? Um, that, that, it, that, that in a way, the, mar the market has very much been created by neoliberalism, the mass displacement, the need to look for better work, whether in cities, moving from countryside to cities, or country to country, looking for more work. Then, that, then, then you come up against the privatized infrastructure like Boeing's $2.5 billion virtual fence that is being built on the border between the U.S and Mexico, the largest homeland security contract issued to any company. Whether it works or not is besides the point. It is, you know, it, it, it is an economy, and this is such a resilient model that it can both displace the people, it can't find jobs for them, but it can profit from containing them. Uh, and Halliburton, of course, um, one of their more recent contracts was a contract to build detention centers um, in the case of some of a vaguely worded unexpected immigration influx, um, which I think is probably a reference to mass displa displacement because of some sort of uh, a natural disaster, probably is what the reference is. Um, so, so precariousness is the, is the signature effect of, of, of neoliberalism. And what we're starting to see in, in, and uh, it are more and more very interesting social movements that are organizing around the idea of precariousness. And because the women's movement has such a long history of organizing in sectors that, are, that, that have, were ignored by a predominantly male labor movement, um, it makes sense that what we're seeing is that women are at the forefront of these new organizing models. 
because the, the organizing of, of home workers, for instance, the organizing of sex workers, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 the drive to get um, housework uh, counted in the work of Marilyn Waring, for instance, all of this groundwork that feminists have been laying is suddenly, I, I think, being noticed, finally, although not enough, uh, by some left-wing male economic thinkers and writers who are recognizing now that this organizing in, uh, of the precarious is, the, is, is our future. When I was in Argentina, we were making this film called The Take about, uh, about what happened in Argentina after the economic crisis in 2001. And uh, this was, uh, I, I think of it now as post-disaster reconstruction, reconstructing from the disaster that is neoliberalism. It wasn't a natural disaster or a war, but you know, Argentina looked like it had been hit by a war at this point. Uh, and, um, and what we were making a documentary film about was, was uh, workers who had been laid off by their workplaces, mostly factories, though not exclusively factories. Um, and they had to face a choice. I mean, it was really a choice, as many workers put it to us, between life and death. Um, there was no social safety net left. So being laid off um, was, was a death sentence for many people. Um, so there was a drive to, uh, to uh, for, for what is called the Occupied Factory Movement. Um, and what it really was was people refusing to be fired, right? Being told they were fired and just unfiring themselves. Uh, going, well, you know, saying to their owners, you can leave um, if you want, um, <laughs> but we're staying. Um, and staging the, the, the reverse of a strike, right? If you think about the traditional labor action of withholding labor, that's not a very effective tactic if you have an economic system that doesn't want you to work or have any work for you, right? And you're in a country where 60% of the people have, just, have been pushed under the poverty line in a country that used to have the largest middle class in Latin America. So people said, well, the machines are good. Um, we still know how to work them. Um, we're going to go back in and work. And, and you know, what was really interesting in, in Argentina is that this movement was, was, it was not exclusively a women's movement, but it was definitely a women's-led movement. And the first occupied factory was a garment factory called Brookman uh, in downtown Buenos Aires. They made business suits. Um, and the, the women of Brookman, um, as they were called, um, were not self-described feminists. They uh, were just looking at this future of being the, prime, the, 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 the only uh, um, employed people in their families. Um, they, many of them had husbands who were less resilient in the face of the economic crisis. Um, that one of the things that we see in these disaster zones is that the, the, the loss of pride associated with work hits men harder and um, men are less resilient in the face of disasters. And what we heard from a lot, the women in, in Brookman, was that their husbands were just sitting at home drinking, many of them were becoming violent, and it was entirely up to them to earn money, and that's why they decided to occupy uh, their factory and put the machines back to work. Um, when I was in New Orleans, a, a, a local community organizer there named Sackett Sony, who works with migrant workers, um, he, 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 said, he said to me, you know, 
I'm tired of hearing about disaster capitalism. Um, they have disaster capitalism, but we, we need disaster collectivism. Um, and uh, I think it's such a fantastic phrase. And, 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 and when he said it, I realized that in so many of these disaster zones, I've seen this impulse, this disaster collectivism impulse. Um, it's really the opposite of this dream of starting over, starting from scratch. It's much more practical. It's a radical practicality. Um, I call it starting from scrap. Uh, starting whatever's, what, whatever's left around and, and, and whoever is left around. Um, and, uh, and, and, and what I've seen from the tsunami-affected areas of Sri Lanka uh, uh, to Iraq, to New Orleans, to Argentina, and all of this research over the past four years is that women really are at the forefront. Um, they, are, they are developing the intellectual framework um, and they're developing it with their hands. This is a, another phrase, I'll just leave it with you. Um, and, and coming back again to something Josephine said about, uh, about NGOs, and, and it's something I think we need to talk more and more about, the professionalization of, of activism, of civil society. I always say we need less civil society and more civil disobedience. Um, especially, you know, in, 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 the, in these extreme circumstances. And um, in, in, Sri, in Sri Lanka, after the tsunami, uh, you had one of the most uh, just blatant cases of, of disaster capitalism, I think, anywhere. Four days after the tsunami hit, uh, the government pushed through a water privatization law. Four days after. Uh, they also pushed, were pushing in an electricity privatization law, um, uh, flexibilization of labor. I mean, the whole package. This is a country that had just lost 40,000 people in the wave. 40,000 people. Um, and obviously, their attention was focused elsewhere. Um, the NGOs, and, and, and that was only one side of the, the, the neoliberal experiment. The, the other part of it was that people were relocated from the coast into inland camps. The, the, the people who lost the most in the tsunami, both their lives and their livelihoods, were, were, were fishing people, people who, who lived on the coast and lived off the ocean. And, um, and they were brought to inland camps in the name of their safety, in the name of their security. And meanwhile, while this was happening, the coastlines were being handed over to huge resort developers with the help of the US government and the World Bank and the usual suspects. Um, and, uh, and, and so what, what the NGOs did in this period was really, really troubling because it was actually a kind of a revolutionary moment um, as people watched this happen. People uh, wanted to resist. I mean, it was theft, and people were seeing it. And especially because an unprecedented amount of charity had been raised in the name of the victims of the tsunami, and they knew it, right? So these were the, the, the richest poor people in the world, right? Um, yet they are living in absolutely squalid camps. And the camps were entirely run by NGOs who were play, playing this, this state function. The state was nowhere to be found all along the hardest hit coast in Sri Lanka. Um, and, and what the NGOs ended up doing was keeping people in this kind of a holding pattern when, when there was this moment when they actually really needed to fight. Um, but the, this aid model set in of just wait here, we'll take care of you, there's more blankets coming, there's more food coming, you have to stay in the camp. If you're not in the camp, then you can't get food and you won't get your vouchers and you won't get whatever the aid is. So rather than going back and defending the land, which was 
literally being taken. Um, people stayed in the camps. Uh, and there, was, there were some exceptions. And once again, these were exceptions that were predominantly led by women. Um, and the, 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 the most dramatic cases were in Thailand, uh, where, um, where people just refused to wait in the camps, where there was so much, uh, there was already such a healthy distrust of the state, of government, um, and of NGOs, that, uh, that, that, that communities, whole villages, organized themselves, went back, marched past the security guards and the soldiers, and retook their land, and then said, okay, are we allowed to come back now? They said, as they were rebuilding. Uh, and they called this negotiating with their hands, uh, negotiating with their hands from a position of strength. Uh, and, um, and that's the sort of spirit that I've seen in all these places. And, um, and I think it's, uh, I'll end on that note. Thank you.